0: Hello and welcome to Entocast! This is a special bonus episode that we're bringing to you. So we were at the big UK entomology conference, Ento17, so we thought we would give you some highlights of some of the people we talked to there, so this is the latest research coming from entomologists across the country and further afield, and we just wanted to show you a bit of the snippets from that, so I hope you enjoy this bonus episode.
1: Hello, listeners. We are here at ENTO 17, the Royal Entomological Society's annual uh, conference. (laughs) (laughs) This is the main conference of the year that I know I myself look forward to greatly. And there's a great buzz in the room. Everyone is talking about all things entomology. We have lots of researchers from across not only the UK, but from further afield as well. Uh, everyone is speaking about their research we've got some fantastic talks on uh, as well as poster presentations and we are here talking to people about their research and what they've been getting up to in the entomological world and I'm here too it's <laughs> gonna <laughs> be a live thing or should we get him to hold it no it's fine like that okay you... cool no you just ignore the microphone I mean, just ignore chat the microphone. to us okay so first of all can you tell us who yeah. you are Fair enough, anyway.
2: it's a good place to start. Uh, Jordan Ryder, PhD student at Harper Adams University, and I work on
1: bees. And
2: wow. what do you do with bees? I work on solitary bees and bumblebees, um, mainly Osmia bicornis and Bombus terrestrial, and I'm looking at nutrition for them.
0: Okay, and what is the most interesting thing about your research?
2: Uh, ooh. So it's sort of an area that's quite overlooked in the whole pollinator decline thing. Uh, so bees. recent evidence come out to show that they're really important pollinators and I'm sort of really investigating to sort of get down to what's driving them and driving their sort of fl- floral resource selection and that sort of thing.
0: Okay. And have you found any interesting results so far? Do you want to give us a preview? Um,
2: <laughs> I, ha- I mean I haven't published too much so I can't say too much but we have found they are selecting uh, mm. being highly selective of certain pollens and they have a restricted flight radius all the Potentially travel slightly further for what we can gather are high nutritional polymers. But I need to back this up with some more biochemical analysis and some bioassay experiments that are ongoing at the moment. Cool.
3: My name is Roy Sanderson. I'm a lecturer in biological modelling at, the, at Newcastle University in the School of Natural and Environmental Sciences, and I'm a member of the Biological, Clinical, and Environmental Systems Modelling Group. Uh, with me is Eli Patterson, who is one of my PhD students of
4: Jimmy Yes, hi, my name is Eli and I'm a third year PhD student, just going into my fourth year and I'm looking at uh, factors affecting invertebrate movement working with assemblages on organic conventional
1: form. Okay, so is this um, kind of... Computer-based no. work, or you got field work? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Quite a lot of
4: field work in first year, wasn't it? There was a lot of fast yes. to do. It's basically the field work. I had to uh, put uh, pitfall traps and pan traps to collect pitfall trap to collect all the epigeal, the ground movement insects, and the pan trap to collect the foliar flying insects. And um, I did that on both organic and conventional farm to see. You know if there's any differences or there are still narratives between the groups that i'm studying
1: and what did you find
4: well in terms of um the groups i'm looking at three groups basically um the epigeal the groups the foliar groups and the, and the um, herbivore groups but of course we found out that uh, the movement of epigeal is limited basically from boundary to crop because of their dispersal ability and when you look at the the foliar it's a bit different because foliar tend to disperse a little bit more than the epigeal so it's it's basically different in terms of how they, they move and what's affecting them when you think of the herbivore basically it's in between in terms of the movement and in terms of what affecting them so in brief yes the epigeal movement is different from the, the, the foliar and the things that are affecting them are somewhat different
3: it's a single farm but it's been split into organic and conventional and they they have different management systems on the two halves, obviously, but they also grow different crops. Mm-hmm. So you can't do a single analysis of all the data. Effectively, you have to analyse it as an organic farm or it as a conventional farm. Mm-hmm. But you do have the advantage that it's got the same climatic conditions, the same um, soil type, approximately. It's all in the same area. Um, but we also have an advantage, although Eli worked his guts out in... 2015 wasn't yeah. it it your yeah, first yeah, full field season taking all these samples uh, and you did you did say in one of your talks just how many there were and I was yeah blown away 100, by
4: 180,808 insects it, it's clouded nice. into <laughs> <display. Yeah. laughs> the rain well
3: they're the ones that you identify, yes yeah. yes, wow. yes so <laughs> um, but the farm has been uh, managed by the university like this for what 20 years I suppose yeah and um, so Eli has also been analysing, he, he sampled his insects using a standardised method that other scientists have used at the same site. So it's allowed him to look at, for example, what are the rotational patterns because the rotation systems are completely different as well. Yeah. So one has got a, the organic has got a seven year rotation. The organic got
4: an eight year rotation for the, for the organic and a five year rotation for the conventional. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yes.
0: So, and did you
1: find the rotation had an effect as well? Yes, yeah.
4: yes. The crops in the rotation has an effect on different groups differently also. It, it, obviously, it's quite complicated analysis because
3: you have to take into account what's the year-to-year differences in the weather. Yeah. So you have to yeah. partial all that out. But you also have what's the most dominant thing affecting the insects. It's what is the current crop. That is the dominant effect. But Eli also picked up effects from what was the previous year's crop and there are all sort of differences depending on whether or not there had been soil disturbance. In other words, was the previous year to do with ploughing, mm-hmm. which you would be with your conventional arable crop, or, for example, on the organic system, you get a three-year where you've got grass clover lay. and during those three years, the insect community changes. Mm-hmm. As, it, as there's no soil, yeah. there's no soil disturbance, and then suddenly you get the soil disturbance comes in yeah. when it goes into is it weak that immediately yeah wheat yeah that's on. so you get that sort of
0: effect.
1: It's yeah. almost like a succession effect yeah. that you can pick yes. up and get reset.
5: I'm Michelle. I'm from Edgehill University. Fantastic. And what do
1: you research there?
5: Population genetics for the marsh fertility butterfly in Great Britain.
1: Wow, that sounds really interesting. Tell us a bit more about that.
5: So the Marsh fritillary Butterfly has undergone quite serious declines in the last 20 to 30 years. It's been declining for over a century, but it's got really bad recently. So what I'm looking at is individual populations of the Marsh fritillary within Britain to see what the differences in genetic diversity are between different stable populations, declining populations and then reintroduced populations as well.
6: Okay, so is that kind of looking
1: more for perhaps a cause of something like a decline or is it more for conservation in terms of if we know how diverse we can maybe help with linking it's, up populations
5: or it? It's both really. Um, in places it's declining despite available habitats, so we're wondering if it might be inbred and declining for that reason, which then leads into the conservation argument of do we need to start artificially moving butterflies around to restore the connectivity of the habitats?
1: That's oh, really interesting. So, what are your findings so far? Anything you can tell us?
5: And <laughs> um, the one, the population I've really looked at so far is the Cumbrian Marsh artillery, which is actually a reintroduced population. Okay. So, in that case, it dropped down to a single sibling web containing 150 larvae, wow. and from that, a local group of volunteers using nothing but small grants and their own back gardens and 100 or so larvae they got from Scotland has managed to reintroduce it to 14 sites across Cumbria and it's colonised an additional four on its own. So what they originally wanted to do was to try and preserve Cumbrian-specific alleles. My work suggests they haven't been so successful on that side, but when you realise that what was left of Cumbria was one group of full siblings, there weren't that many Cumbrian-specific alleles left.
1: yeah I guess did a a really good conservation win
0: it's a good conservation
5: win in that we got it there and we've also demonstrated the success of captive breeding for the species but what we really need to do is now apply that to other populations before it hits that level of low if they'd been able to
7: implement this 10 years earlier in Cumbria we'd be looking at a very different answer I'm Jenny Hodgson. I'm a conservation biologist at the University of Liverpool. Oh,
0: excellent. And what were you talking about?
7: I was talking about my work on ecological networks, um, particularly habitat networks, the networks of habitat patches that species need to survive and what kind of networks they need to be able to adapt to climate change. Are
1: there any projects in particular within that that you're talking about?
7: So my work has always had... A theoretical angle and an empirical angle so I talked about the real range expansions that are going on in UK species there's some of the most uh, some of the best studied um, insects in the world are in the UK and we know a lot about where they've been in the past and because the UK is also at the northwestern edge of Europe We have a lot of species that occur in the south of the UK that didn't used to occur in the north, but they are gradually shifting northwards and expanding to their northern edge because of climate change. So I talked a bit about that, about a species that we've studied in detail called the Silver Spotted Skipper, which is a specialist butterfly that's expanding through a fragmented landscape of habitat. And then I talked about some theoretical work that I did on if you've got a given amount of habitat, What is the absolute best way to arrange it spatially, Mm. in order to make the uh, to allow a species to shift its range faster?
1: So, what were the findings of this?
7: Of the theoretical study? Yeah. um, The findings were that there are particular arrangements of habitats that are uh, best for range shifting, and they're not exactly the same as the patterns that are best if the climate isn't changing and the species doesn't need to move because if it doesn't need to move you can clump all the habitat together and leave big gaps between clumps if the species does need to move it needs somehow to get between those clumps so you don't necessarily have to have a big continuous corridor as you might imagine like the m1 motorway <laughs> but you do need to have regular amounts of habitat within striking distance for the species depending on its dispersal distance wow. and they need to be going in the right direction
1: yeah so i guess it's really easy to see the application of this in terms of conservation mm. this kind of research is really helpful for people
7: yeah and i have been working in collaboration with a few conservation organizations to see how this can be applied to that um, they're planning, so they have really ambitious goals, like restoring 15% of degraded ecosystems. That's an, uh, a goal under the Convention on Biological Diversity. It's not quite clear what that means yet, or, or how they're going to achieve it. But to think about how they achieve it in the best way is um, is something they're really interested in.
6: I'm Darren Evans, Um, I work here at Newcastle University, and I'm one of the conveners for this conference.
1: Brilliant, and uh, what is it that you work on?
6: So I work on um, species interaction networks, Um, in particular trying to link plants, insects, mammals, birds, soil microbes and so on together into this large um, network framework that we use which we're beginning to have the computer processing power to begin to interrogate and understand. So it's quite quite an exciting time to be looking at how ecosystems form and also some of the co-evolutionary aspects of that too.
0: Brilliant. And as one of the conveners, how do you think the conference is going so far?
6: I think the conference is going very well, so um, the, the theme was obviously around entomological networks yes. and um, we very specifically focused on networks in its broadest sense because of people are either working on social networks, we've had some really good talks about that, um, or they're looking at species interaction networks or uh, gene networks as well. So um, I think it's sort of people are beginning to think about how to link up sort of work they do in a wider context
0: Cool, and if you were to tell us the most interesting thing in your opinion about your research, what would that be?
6: You often hear um, the sort of arguments between taxonomists and molecular ecologists saying that what they do is is best or how molecular ecologists tend to think that there's no need for taxonomists and so on um, and I, I really don't see that at all. Um, One of the things working on species interactions that I really enjoy is that although we know a huge amount about the natural history of insects or birds mammals whatever, particularly in the UK we still know very little about the direct and indirect ways in which those organisms interact and so uh, primarily for me we, we need natural historians we need people to begin to look at where those species that they've been studying for years fit into a wider network of interactions. So I actually think network ecology is really positive for natural historians because we really need to look at the detailed ways in which organisms interact. Um, And so I see um, molecular ecology and taxonomy as a two-way street.
8: Right. Uh, my name is Jasper Hubert um, I've been working in entomology now for about eight years and I'm working uh, for a company that does biological control in, uh, in glass houses uh, in, in strawberries and tunnels and so on across the country. Um, I've started uh, researching this uh, here in Newcastle actually, started here, uh, started off with in- well with the normal biology with the Rodden Port and then went down to London to Imperial uh, to do the entomology there and yeah and now working in crop protecting for the past eight years. Oh,
1: so can you tell us what that involves? Uh,
8: it involves a lot of driving, <laughs> a lot of driving <laughs> to different farms and uh, then when I'm actually there of course it, well, it uh, involves setting up a program um, of release dates for certain insects, basically for beneficial insects, mm-hmm. um, to combat the pests and then on my behalf often to uh, well, to convey the knowledge of course on how to do that, to train the people up, to show them what they have to look for, um, what are the good signs, what are the bad signs, so that they can more effectively manage their own populations uh, of, of insects to see what is coming and to uh, be proactive about it and uh, well, see when there is a problem coming basically to, to know w- which insects to use against that. Or as well, of course, and for me too, as a backup, every two weeks I will visit the farms and have a look myself and see what is going on and help them with the decision-making process. Brilliant.
0: proper IPM then. I, yeah. <laughs> yes. And what would you yes. say is the most enjoyable part of your job?
8: Um, the actual crop walking, most likely, because that is the actual part which is most, well, so closest to the entomology part. You're just walking around the, the farm and you turn over leaves and you look what's underneath it. And... Um, that is the best part. The rest is paperwork and driving. <laughs> <laughs> I don't need to ask you what the least enjoyable yeah, part is. Paperwork there. and driving. Yeah. <laughs> okay,
0: fantastic. Uh, how do you find the sort of move from academia to more of an industry?
8: Um weird. Yeah. <laughs> weird. First of all, like on my first day, for example, um, like it's particularly coming from a like being obviously a poor student background and so on, uh, having your first work day and people just give you a laptop and a car and a phone and a credit card and just uh, <laughs> there is so much money in industry. It is quite a change, of course, from academia, and um, uh, something which you don't necessarily see at the very beginning of the job, but like kind of you you get that feeling more and more as you do the job uh, that there is um, uh, a little bit of imp- the the professional work, the, the, the non-academical work, is not necessarily as impartial sometimes as the academia work would be. Um,
1: then, do you have a, a kind of favourite pest to deal with or a favourite crop where you think oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to this farm today, I'm going to see this thing, um, just interesting?
8: Yes, yes definitely. It, it's it's a mixture. A depends on which grower you're going to see, it has a big impact. Some are nicer, some are not so nice, but uh, <laughs> that, that's of course, but uh, yeah of course it is it, There are certain crops which are easy, I I consider them easy peppers, consider them walk in the park really, uh, whereas some other crops, I hate them, I I hate tomatoes for example and all those things, terrible crop. Um, I work mainly in soft fruits and strawberries which is fantastic because on a sunny day to just walk around strawberry fields and do um, quality control sampling of the strawberries and so on is just fantastic and of course there is the fact that, um, which my customers maybe don't like too much, but when things go wrong you get to witness it, and it's fantastic when you see millions and billions of insects devastating a crop, which is also very interesting. <laughs> it's just as interesting as seeing, of course, and the good guys wiping out the bad guys again, but these are just things <laughs> that you um, well, yeah, you, you, don't, you don't get to see them on a, on a day-to-day basis uh, if you're not in that job, let's say, sure. this way, yeah. <laughs> My name is Michael
9: Hassel, and I'm currently the president. Um, I um, started doing entomology as a PhD student in 1964, which must seem a rather long time to you, guys <laughs> like you. Um, and uh, now I'm retired, and after many years doing insect ecology, I that's still my, my love. Um, but most of my time now is spent at the more sort of organizational level. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm also chairman of a thing called the National Biodiversity Network, which is a a network of organizations that coordinates the recording of biodiversity in this country across all taxa um, and it's, it's one of the nice things about um, being old and experienced and uh, you play one's part doing that sort of thing.
0: Awesome. And what was the most interesting part of your research? Well,
9: starting I suppose around 1970 was a time when the principles of um, ecology weren't weren't very well established in a sort of theoretical mathematical sense and that was a time when um, a lot of the theory of population dynamics was written and I had a part in that and uh, it was a very exciting time
1: So one of the things we've noticed here at ENTO seems to be a very diverse range of delegates do you think that's one of the strengths of the conference?
9: Yes, absolutely yeah because we have here um people who are natural historians, mainly people who work in universities and interested in evolutionary biology, we have molecular biologists, we have crop protection people. I think that's that's very important. You'll find it at most conferences unless they're very specialized. Um, so uh, yeah, that's one of the things that makes conferences um, fun to be at.
0: And what do you think is the most interesting? part of being the president of the Royal Entomological Society?
9: Um, yeah. Well, I suppose, well, the, the entomology, the Royal Entomological Society, I mean, it started in 1833, I think, mm. um, and you just feel part of a, a bit of history. I mean, th- there's a certain amount that you can do in a two-year presidency, but by and large, you are swept along by this great tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, that's a very, very nice thing to be part of. And there are always new initiatives that come up, and as president uh, um, and chairing the council meetings, you can help uh, make sure that the future um, ticks along how it should.
10: Hi, I'm Vicky Senior, and I'm doing a PhD at the University of Sheffield, looking at how climate change is affecting woodland
1: insects. Brilliant. What's that research involved?
10: Uh, lots of different aspects, so I've got some long term data sets I'm working with. I'm um, also collecting more on a couple of shorter term data sets but still kind of long term projects and trying to do some you kind know, of experiments as well. So lots of different aspects into looking at climate change. Right, is that field
1: work with the experiments? Yeah, so
10: got some field work um, in the Riverlin which is on the end of the Peak District. Um, which is quite interesting, so I'm looking at collecting lots of different insects, so some of the more understudied insects as well, to see how they've changed over the past few years and relate that to the weather that's changed as well.
1: How's that gone? Has it been uh, easy or has it been tough? Um, in,
10: in theory, it is, it's easy. It's easy work, but it's tiring work. It's a lot of walking and a lot of <laughs> early mornings, so yeah.
0: Would you be able to give us a little preview of any of the results you've found so far?
10: Um, so, for the stuff I've been doing in the Rivoli, and I haven't analysed any of that yet, but for one of the long term data sets, um, which is looking at aphids and ticklebot trees, I found some interesting results where there's kind of this contrasting effect of temperatures in kind of January, February leading to delays in their phenology, so delaying the timing that they're coming out during the year, but warmer temperatures later on in more spring temperatures, they're kind of. To earlier emergence, so there's kind of a contrasting effect, which is kind of unusual. It's not really been shown in natural populations.
0: So that's cool, very cool. And what would you say is the most interesting part of your work?
10: Um, probably the aspect of looking at understudied insects. So, often climate change looks at and your butterflies and. <laughs> um, well, mostly uh, angiophyte species as well, whereas these are woodland insects, um, which are not really looked at, it, but they serve a really important role within woodlands. So. And actually,
1: woodland insects are the best insects. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, not <that> we're fires.
11: <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ashley Whiffin, and I am Assistant Curator of Entomology up in Edinburgh at National Museum Scotland. So, as Assistant Curator, it's a pretty variable job. Um, Every day I'm doing different things, whether that's curating the collection, adding new specimens into the collection, um, going out to the field collecting additional material, um, or taking members of the public round on tours. We now host monthly tours of the collection just to make it more accessible to the public, um, or doing ex- external events and giving external talks. Um, also hosting while many visitors to the collection, giving them access to the research specimens. Um, and Yes, just uh, doing all those things in rotation in a completely haphazard manner sometimes, but um, it keeps it very exciting and very, very interesting, so I l- really enjoy the job.
1: And uh, how do you find that
0: relates to other areas like entomology, like uh, academia?
11: Yeah, there's lots of overlap. So we work with universities, we work with other museums, um, and sometimes they're joint projects so sometimes we're quite involved, Um, other times it's just simply providing the access, um, so um, just that kind of side of it, hosting them as visitors um, and providing the specimens that are needed, Um, other times developing ideas and projects so recently we collaborated with the Royal Botanic Gardens of Edinburgh and we had a joint thing going with them because their uh, corpse flower bloomed so I was My focus is carrying insects, I was quite interested to monitor that and do some collaborative work with them. Suddenly we didn't get the insects we were hoping for, but um, it was still great to work with them and really expand our network of um, organisations that we collaborate with.
0: So how did you end up getting involved and end up doing this job in the first place?
11: Um, I kind of went the back route, so my BSc was in Forensic Science I really got into carrying insects in a big way then, and uh, but realised I needed to broaden out a bit more uh, because I wanted to learn about general entomology. So I did the masters, I did the MSc at Harper Adams. It's actually the first year to do it at Harper Adams, Um, and yeah, I have since then been very very fortunate that the people that I met through the Masters gave me some valuable work experience so I did volunteering at the Natural History Museum for six months uh, which helped me get a job at Edinburgh University where I worked as a research technician looking at burying beetles and then jumped from there to the museum environment and once I was in the museum that was it there's no going back I just think that it's a fantastic place to work yeah Um, and so I've been there for three years now That's the part I'm sticking to.
0: What do you think are the best and the worst parts of your job?
11: Oh, there's a lot of really good parts. I think the worst part is that there's sometimes too much stuff, uh, too much that you want to get involved with, um, lots of potential projects and uh, some of them time-consuming, so you really have to uh, limit yourself and be very organised and prioritised. Uh, so I think just, yes, there's quite a lot to get your teeth into. Uh, the best bits, field work is an absolute joy, uh, getting out and seeing things uh, live um, and yeah, watching the behaviour and yeah, going to new places, that's one of the best bits. And then the other thing is collaborating, so constantly meeting new people, uh, other entomologists and members of the public. Um, just, uh, yeah, basically sharing our passions together.
12: I'm Matthew Esch, I'm from a master's student at Edil University and also co runner of the Silver Day recording scheme. Oh,
1: brilliant, that sounds yeah. really interesting. Could you tell us a bit about that?
12: Yeah, the recording scheme started with Ashley Whiffin, who I believe you've already interviewed. Yeah. <laughs> um, she tweeted me, I started my Twitter account for my research <laughs> and it was all about the Silver Day, and she just tweeted me saying, do you want to start a scheme? I was like, oh yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, so it's been what, nearly 18 months now. So we've run workshop, run a workshop at Edge University. Had over 20 people. Um, it was all run for free. My head of department was very nice like that. Um, so, yeah, and everyone, really good feedback from it. And feedback from the scheme in general, presenting at MVN conference. Wow. Yeah, so Ashley did a short talk and I did the poster and stand and stuff. We actually had a live Silphidae family there. Oh, awesome. Nycrophorus Vespoloides. So we had a little, oh. um, we, we had a rotting carcass. Luckily, <laughs> it, it was in a sealed box. <laughs> a sealed <laughs> box. <what> <laughs> yeah, luckily they had the safety form <laughs> for taking that in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you could lift, it was only, it had a like an inch of soil in there. And you could lift up, look underneath where the carcass was. You could see the larvae. Oh, um, start moving around you could see the pair the male and female you know actively caring for them and everything it's great
1: so that's really cool yeah and generating yeah. lots of records as well yeah
12: yeah exactly and there's people that you don't often get to see it visually mm. you hear about it with me rambling at Ento's <laughs> and things like that but yeah
1: so you run this scheme and um, so I take it you mentioned before your research has to do with Sylphie so what yeah. exactly are you looking at?
12: So our, the title of it is Carrion beetle assemblages in broadleaf woodland conifer plantations and unforested Habitats. because their behavior as I've explained is really cool mm. they the ecology is really understudied so that's what I've tried to do come in and give a better picture of the ecology really so and how, what's that involve? Um, so I set mouse and cheese baited traps. Yeah, yeah um, across around the country from Pembrokeshire up to the Lake District. So a lot of miles involved last summer. Um, so set traps, in wrap the mouse and cheese in mosquito netting to stop flies. Take strip in the carcass and things like that. Um, set them for two weeks every month over the growing season. And got the results, yeah, it's gone
1: pretty well. And have you seen also. some cool species?
12: Yeah, uh, Nycrophorus interruptus, um, which is very similar to Investigator. Yeah. Um, but the hairs on the back end are a different colour, uh, golden rather than black. Mm-hmm. And that's almost the only difference. So i uh, only got six specimens of it, but four from one place. So I'm trying, I want to go back there and have a look see what else might be there uh, yeah there are lots of talk. I think they're all cool but you know not everyone does <laughs> well I agree with
13: you thank yeah, you no, it's amazing I'm Gordon Port I work at Newcastle University where I teach entomology and ecology biological control I've been a fellow of the Royal Entomological Society for about 45 years and I'm currently running
0: Ento 17. Awesome, and you were here at the uh, first ENTO as well, uh, 20 years ago now? Oh, 97, I've got Brilliant. the
13: t-shirts, <laughs> I've got all the t-shirts. ENTO 97, <laughs> 20 years ago, was the first uh, ENTO meeting as, as we now know them, um, because the Royal Anthropological Society had always run meetings in and around London based on their London headquarters, their, their activities were very London focused, they realised they wanted to actually do events away from London for the benefit of people who were not nearby. Mm-hmm. And in uh, just before ninety-seven, they felt that they wanted to run an annual event away from London, so they phoned me up and said, could we run a meeting at Newcastle? And the rest is history. Oh,
0: brilliant. And how do you think ENTO has developed since that first one 20 years ago to now?
13: It's, some parts of it have, have stayed very much the same in that we tend to invite a few uh, keynote speakers along and then the rest of the meeting is made of offered presentations so that people who've got work to present and feel that it's an appropriate forum will will say, yeah, I'd like to come along and do this and then we craft it into a programme. But we've refined things a bit. Uh, Twenty years ago we had a meeting in two halves with a symposium session first and then the annual meeting afterwards and we've got a big uh, change in audience about halfway through we now tend to mix it up a little bit so that there's uh, diversity and, and things run along. 97 there, uh, there were no digital aids at all really I and mean, we were doing email and mm-hmm. you could write things on word but email was not really terribly reliable, no digital photographs, so it's very difficult to get archived material from them. Mm. Um, These days it's so easy to send emails that of course you get all sorts of things happening, like people changing their talks at the last minute. (laughs) That's life.
1: Brilliant, thank you. Um, So could you tell us a bit about your work?
13: I'm not really a proper entomologist, although (laughs) I work on insects quite a lot, and I run a lot of student projects on insect topics. My main love is slugs, and I've been trying to get slugs to be honorary insects for years. (laughs) Uh, And that's partly because when I came to Newcastle, I wanted to find something that was available throughout the year to work on, Mm. because it's a cooler climate up here. Um, the, The season for insect activity is a little bit more restricted. But slugs just keep on going. So, um, And and they fitted very much with what I wanted to do in terms of looking at improving management of pests. So, yeah, I'm really a a slugaholic. But, of course, there really are just other invertebrates. And Mm. indeed, the ENTO meeting uh, hit, we've got people presenting stuff about mites and uh, all sorts of things like that, so it's, we we are a broad church. <laughs>
1: mm. Yeah, I guess it works because a lot of the principles in entomology are shared for studying any kind of inverts. Am-
13: absolutely, yes, and uh, the, the principles of, of pest management, which is one of my interests, is, is uh, applicable within all of the uh, invertebrate animals we deal with, but also to a certain extent with other pest groups like weeds and fungi. Mm.
0: And what would you say is the most interesting thing about your research? Why slugs? Why do you like them so much? Well, the reason that
13: slugs are so interesting is because they're so clever. They're mm. so much cleverer than insects. <laughs> they really are. They, they well, they they learn things. They have they go back to a home every day after they've been foraging. They mm. learn what is good food, what is not good food, and they're very very sensitive to the environment around them, which is. Really crucial for them in terms of their survival because mm. they, they, you know, they're, they're wet, slimy animals and could soon dry out if they got into the wrong situation. But it is that uh, ability to learn so much about what the environment is doing to them mm. that makes them so difficult to predict. So we, we have to actually. The only way, way we can deal with them is to pr- try and persuade them to eat food that's got poison in it. <laughs> <laughs> and. <laughs> Yeah, they're not stupid. <laughs> they, they tend not to eat it very readily. But there are biological controls available and we'd love to make that a much more uh, accessible way of, of dealing with uh, slugs, but it's very much more expensive than the chemical control.
9: Yeah.
13: And I, whilst I, I always tell people that I'm interested in managing slugs, I suspect really what I'm trying to do is manage farmers and gardeners to stop them using too much pesticide mm-hmm. and, uh, and just using it when it's absolutely vital and it's going to be effective.
0: Mm. And do you have a favourite species of
13: slug? Oh, it's very difficult mm. because they've all got their pros and cons. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <enough of> a- <laughs> <laughs> I, I suppose the one that we've worked on most is the field slug, a tiny little grey guy called Deroceros reticulatum. Just because uh, it is the most important pest, not only in this country but around uh, the, the temperate regions of the world. But then you get all sorts of exciting species like the leopard slug, yeah. which yeah. hangs from a rope of mucus when mating and swings around in the air. And you know, it's just <laughs> well, amazing. let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So those were some of the highlights coming out of Ento 17. I hope you guys have enjoyed that little bonus episode. I will be back soon with a normal episode of Entocast. All left to say is don't forget to subscribe to this if you like it and tell everyone about it. And like our Facebook, follow us on Twitter, Entocast. And yeah, just have a good time. See you guys later. I mean, most of the time I'm in the lab, I am sliding around ground on my movable chair. Or spinning on my movable chair. Whichever comes first, to be honest. So basically, if you're walking, it's fieldwork. Essentially, yeah. Like, <laughs> everything out there, even though it's indoors, is fieldwork to me. <laughs> like, if I walk over and talk to one of these people, that's fieldwork. Thus, it is the field mic that we go and use out there. Field mic. Well, which I didn't bring. <laughs> <laughs> Oh no for that except it's all a learning experience.